as a way of opening tonight um, to ask you to sit up and close your eyes again for a very brief reflection. The question to reflect on, what is it that I'm devoted to in this life? can continue reflecting as we go. I asked the question because I'd like to share some of my reflections on devotion tonight, on devotion in Buddhist practice. But to begin, I'd like to acknowledge that the word is uh, a trigger word in a sense. It, it can bring up a sense of excessive emotional religiosity, blind faith, Uh, something narrow. The word actually means to give up wholly, to let go into fully. It's really a, a natural expression of unconditional love. So when we ask the question, you know, what am I really devoted to? We're devoted to what we love in its highest expression as a a parent's devotion to a child or someone's devotion to help someone that's sick or devotion to saving the planet. It's not so narrow. And when we think of it, if our life was without devotion, if there was nothing we felt that kind of wholehearted commitment towards, it would be really a shallow life. We'd be skimming the surface. Robert Frost writes, Something we were withholding made us weak until we found it was ourselves. We hold back out of fear in our life. We all do it to some degree. Another poet wrote, put all that you are into the least that you do. And we have a struggle showing up even when we've recognized it's important. I vow all the time that I'm going to bring a certain quality of presence to my contact with my son or to this situation or that situation. I do it every time before I go home to visit my parents and then I go into a trance every time. I'm sure the psychological types here can explain it. (laughs) But we all have a devotion towards showing up, and yet we're not able to. We have this conditioning to kind of go to sleep. We also have what you might consider unhealthy or narrow areas of devotion, where we kind of mislead ourselves. We hitch our caring to something smaller 
than what really matters to us, to some sort of a, a defense that we need to maintain or some aggrandizement, some money, some achievement, conquering an enemy. On the mature spiritual path, devotion, we can sense intuitively what's wise. It's not towards a thing. It's not towards having life a certain way. Rather, it's towards the fullness of living, towards really being awake, having these hearts love fully, these minds really be awake and present. Our devotion, in a sense, is the devotion to fully belong to this life. The word belonging really strikes me. There's this phrase, longing to belong, that that's our most essential longing. And if you keep running it, longing to belong, to belong, to belong, it really begins to drop us into a deep place. What else is there than belonging to this life? To really discovering our connection Arrhenius, who was from the 2nd or 3rd century, wrote, The glory of God is the human person fully alive, fully belonging to this life. Now, in different mystical traditions, there are all sorts of practices that cultivate and express the sense of belonging. Meditation cultivates We practice connecting to this moment and this moment. Singing, dancing, prayer, we express that belonging. And when we think about it, without this urge, this devotion, none of us would be here, none of us would practice, none of us would pursue very much of anything in this lifetime. Devotion isn't a... um, a religious word, really. It's that urge to live fully. And you can feel that urge all around you. I mean, when you look at that color of green in these new leaves, that color is the urge to exist. Sometimes when I just meditate on that green, my whole body vibrates with it because you can feel the aliveness and the urge towards aliveness. It's what compels us. Young writes, nothing is possible without love, without this urge to live, to belong. For love puts one in a mood to risk everything, to not withhold the important element. We're in training, in a sense, a training to stop resisting. We get very caught in our habitual modes and in our familiar thoughts and our familiar patterns of how we shut off from ourselves and relate to each other. And in a way, all of that is a way of holding back a genuine sense of presence and aliveness. Now, the Buddha, in talking about this training, described two wings. And one, as I've mentioned many times, is the wing of wisdom, mindfulness, seeing clearly. 
And yet, if our whole practice was learning just to see clearly, to analyze this and this, to take things apart, it'd be very dry. In fact, we wouldn't be drawn. So devotion is the urge to really let go and live the life that we're looking at so closely. And yet without mindfulness, it gets diluted and it hitches itself to what's smaller than the real currents of life gets derailed. So mindfulness allows for the non-attachment, the clarity that allows us to love fully without getting hooked. Now when I started spiritual practices about 25 years ago in a formal way, I lived in an ashram and the primary practices were really devotional practices and that's what drew me it kind of my heart sang with it we did chanting and prayer and the kind of meditation that was absorbing and blissful and it was a very high experience and there's a lot that was beautiful about it it really kind of woke up that place in my heart that longs for that which is bigger than ego and bigger than the habitual way of going through things, the transcendent. So it was a wonderful training, but there was no practice of mindfulness. So all this devotion allowed me to feel blissful, but then I attached the feelings of bliss to a certain teacher, to a certain religion, to just certain practices. When it didn't work, when I didn't feel great, there was self-blame. When I did feel great, there was a feeling of spiritual pride. That's an example. Devotion without mindfulness. So we practice these two wings of seeing clearly what's true and connecting in a deep way, living what's happening. It's a misunderstanding to think of mindfulness practice as observing. And it's one of the big misunderstandings because it leaves it clinical and cold and removed. How can we observe spring? You know, we are spring. There's spring in us, in our bodies, in our loving. So tonight, to talk a bit more about how we awaken this heart of devotion, how we live it more fully. I notice for myself, when I think back of the different uh, teachers or friends that kind of pointed the way on the path, it had nothing to do with any of the content of what they told me about that got me cooking. It was the quality of their devotion. And some of my teachers had a much more mental way of articulating things, and some were very kind of emotionally passionate, and some were just a very quiet kind of loving presence. But with all of them, what came through in its own creative way was this deep, wholehearted caring about waking up. How to cultivate that, how to let go into that. 
I'd like to, because there's so many different ways of awakening this heart of devotion, primarily talk about how we awaken through wanting. And I do that for a reason. I, I think that one of the biggest areas of misunderstanding in terms of classical Buddhism has to do with desire and wanting. We'll hear in the sutras to guard the sense doors. Have some of you heard that? Protect yourself from what you might hear, what you might feel, so that we don't get snagged in the endless cycles of wanting and desire. We hear in the sutras that the great way is easy for one who has no preferences. Anybody here like that? We might have moments, and they're very, very revealing. And it's possible to really drop it all. But we wouldn't be embodied if we didn't have preferences or somebody that we're related to didn't have preferences. You know what I mean? It runs life. So desire, as we begin to realize, when it turns into grasping, causes suffering. We get addicted. And desire also equals being alive. The very nature of life is desiring. The urge towards coherence, towards taking form, towards surviving, towards reproducing. I'd like to read you a little bit from one of my favorite books on cosmic, the cosmic creation story. This is, The Universe is a Green Dragon. Think of the entire cosmos, all 100 billion galaxies rushing through space. At this cosmic scale, the basic dynamism of the universe is the attraction each galaxy has for every other galaxy. Nothing in all science has been established with greater attention and detail than this primary attraction of each part of the universe for every other part. This is gravity, one name for gravity, this force of attraction. It's what got the universe going. It's what allows stars to go here and planets to adhere and our body to adhere. Now, another bit of science. It's called a matter of some importance. You're reading this because some 15 billion years ago, when the cosmos was created in the Big Bang, something went subtly askew. Presumably, the Big Bang produced equal amounts of matter and antimatter. So when a matter particle met its antimatter counterpart, each should have annihilated the other in a flash of light, producing a universe that was all shine and no substance. But as you've probably noticed, that didn't happen. By about one part in a billion, creation expressed a preference for matter over antimatter. Now this is important because if we take to heart the uh, guidance that we should have no preference, we're stuck because it's just who we are. That doesn't mean we can't awaken and let go of things. 
but it's our nature to have preference. Life takes shape because of preferences. So how to relate to this world of wanting, whether we think of it as physical, sexual, sensual, longing for love, the longing for belonging, how to relate in a way that awakens us. Because the given is, that's who we are. We want. It's interesting, another article a friend reminded me tonight of uh, was about the, the heart. And one of the things that the writers were describing is how our hearts have about several thousand times the electromagnetic field of the brain. And that there's neural nets of receptors in the heart that operate in the same way as the brain, so the heart remembers. And that when we direct our awareness in certain ways that bring up something that has to do with love, it has a radical effect on our entire biochemistry. When we talk about practices that awaken the heart, devotional practices, these are practices that radically affect our experience of presence. Now, I described before the longing to belong. In a sense, any understanding of prayer can come down to a sense of this longing to belong, this longing to exist, to be part of this creation. Ask yourself, and we do this, what do you want? What do you really want? And our inner being will have different responses, peace, love, freedom, connectedness. The power of prayer is to keep asking that question in a way each time we ask it, we drop down and down and down. What really matters? What really matters? If we find a wanting that's driven by fear, our sense of who we are will be small. If we discover a longing that feels very, very deep, our sense of being will be very expanded. Take a moment, if you will, to reflect. Reflect on a want that you know you get hooked into. Something that drives your day frequently. It might be a want to accomplish. It might be something you want to avoid. It might be a want that has to do with the way another person behaves. It might be a want for a substance. But if you can, recapture this level of wanting. Check for yourself. Wanting mind, wanting. Let yourself want on that level. Want a raise, want money, want a vacation, want somebody to pay attention to you. Want to get done with something that you're in the middle of that's stressful. Want the success of something you're doing. Invite the wanting to be exaggerated. Just to experiment. You can go in this as much or as little as you'd like. 
And as you sense wanting, sense who you are in that wanting. And then please take a deep breath and another. And ask yourself again with sincerity what it is you cherish, what you most want, what you feel in the deepest way devoted to in this life. the people, the qualities of awareness, the qualities of being. Sense as you connect with what you're devoted to, your experience of your own being. What's the sense of self like when you feel your devotion to something deeply important? And just within your own heart-mind, notice the difference between the sense of your being when the wanting is smaller, tighter, attached to something very specific, and the sense of who you are when you drop into the level of the devotional, where you want to give your being in a full and deep way. And come back as you will, taking a few breaths, opening your eyes. So much of our practice of mindfulness, in a sense, is catching ourselves when our wanting being has gotten hooked on a lesser vehicle. When we've gotten hooked on trying to get things done today, versus the devotion to being here and showing up and really living our moments. When we've gotten hooked on trying to make somebody else different versus sharing a sense of sacred presence and appreciation. We find that the more we get hooked in, the further we drift from what really matters. I worked with a couple some uh, about eight months ago and a lot of what they were doing was tracking where they had gotten off track with each other, gotten hooked on wanting the other person to be different and really forgotten who they were and why they were together. After the therapy was over, because um, they were so kind of wide-eyed at how off course they had gotten, they sent me this. I read it to you. In the beginning was the plan 
And then came the assumptions, and the plan was completely without form, and the plan was completely without substance, and darkness fell upon the face of the workers. And they spoke amongst themselves, saying, This is a crock of shit, and it stinketh. (laughs) And the workers went unto their supervisors, and saith, It is a pile of dung, and none may abide the odor thereof. And the supervisors went unto the managers, and saith unto them, It is a container of excrement, and it is very strong, such that none may abide by it. And the managers went unto their directors, and saith, It is a vessel of fertilizer, and none may abide its strength. And the directors spoke amongst themselves, and saith to one another, It contains what which aids plant growth, and it is very strong. And the directors went unto the vice-presidents, and saith unto them, It promotes growth, and it is very powerful. And the vice-presidents went unto the president, and saith unto him, This new plan will actively promote growth and efficiency within this company, and these areas are in particular. And the president looked upon the plan, and saw that it was good, and the plan became policy, and this is how shit happens. (laughs) Cute, isn't it? (laughs) The Buddha described our suffering as the misunderstanding of separateness, experiencing ourselves as separate, Another way I think of it as severed belonging. That for all the different reasons of our culture and our psyche, the original sense of belonging that we each thrive in was severed. Some for more, more for some than others. The, the longing for love, the longing for belonging arises out of a a pre-existing intuition. We know about it. We wouldn't be able to want love if we didn't know it, know about it. We wouldn't long for belonging if there wasn't some place in us that intuited it deep down. And yet we suffer because we don't live in that so often. And it comes out in all sorts of ways. I love this story by Mark Van Doren. A boy named Eddie Shell came one afternoon to play with Frank and me, and at the hour for going home did not know how to do so. This is a malady that afflicts all children, but my mother was not sure how she should handle it in Eddie's case. She consulted us secretly as to whether he should be asked to stay for supper. We thought not, so she hinted to him that his mother might be expecting him. He was so slow in acting upon the hint that we were all in despair and began to feel guilty because we had not pressed him to stay. What I remember now is Eddie standing at last on the other side of the screen door and trying to say goodbye as if he meant it. My mother said warmly, Well, Eddie, come and see us again. Whereupon he opened the door and walked in. It's in every one of us, this wanting to belong. We don't go around sometimes very wakeful about it because we get so preoccupied that we forget 
that that's what we're really wanting. We forget because we've disowned parts of our own being so they don't belong to us. We've pushed parts of ourselves away. Some of you know that very beautiful story of a priest who was at the bedside of a woman dying of AIDS. And in her dying, she still was not releasing this enormous self-hatred towards herself for contracting the disease, for the way she lived her life. So his efforts to reach her to say, hey, you're okay, just went nowhere. She had abandoned parts of herself, dismissed them, pushed them away. She was not belonging to her being. So finally he looked on the dresser by her bed and there was a picture of a young woman there, asked her who it was. She said, my daughter. And he said, you know, if your daughter was in great pain right now, what would you want for her? The woman thought, and she said, just that she know how much I love her. The priest nodded and said, well, what you need to know is God has a picture of you on his dresser. There are so many paths that both sever our sense of belonging and are there to reconnect it. And for each of us, we find what works. John O'Donohue writes, when you forget or repress the truth and depth of your invisible belonging and decide to belong to some system or person or project, you lose yourself and wander more and more away from where your heart wants to go. When we forget our belonging and attach to different things, the hunger only becomes more intense. It's like drinking salt water when we're thirsty, when what we really need is to reconnect to these bodies, to each other, and to this earth. That's what we need. Recently, I led a group and we, were, we sat and meditated, and one woman um, at the end of the group was feeling a lot of distress, a lot of emotion. And so we sat there and, and kept her company and encouraged her to be with the pain. And she was, she was with the distress and with the distress. And I kept asking her periodically, what is it you most want? And she said, well, the pain is that I can't accept parts of myself. They're unacceptable. And then what I want, I just wish that these unacceptable places in my being could be held and loved by myself, by all of us here. And that's what our meditation was, to make room for and bring kindness and care to what she felt was unacceptable and to what we all in our own beings, and we all do this, have pushed away. Just that. What was so beautiful about it is that as a part of the closing, we shared what was true for us. And so many described how it reminded us each what mattered in our own hearts, that there be space, that we hold room, space, caring for that which is pushed away, that there be that belonging. Prayer is the practice that refines our conditional wanting, 
that takes us from, oh, I want this, I want to get an A, I want this attention from that person and get this done. Prayer drops us down, down, down to where devotion lives, where the deepest longing lives in our being. This is Mary Oliver. Once, only, and then in a dream, I watched while secretly, and with the tenderness of any caring woman, a cow gave birth to a red calf, tongued him dry and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night, in the fragrant grass, in the wild domains of the prairie spring. And I asked them in my dream, I knelt down and asked them to make room for me. The practice of prayer is one of listening in the deepest way to what we long for. And real maturity is the integrity of inhabiting our longing. Our longing calls us to the eternal, to that which is timeless, but we have to inhabit it. So in a sense, our training is to learn in a very wakeful way to be with wanting, not because we want to get caught in grasping mind, but because the energy, the aliveness of wanting, if we pay attention wakefully, drops us into that longing. We breathe in and we breathe out, receptive, expressive. And in the same way, we learn to pray. The first part of prayer is listening. It's the meditation we do. It's listening to our hearts. It's that question, what do I cherish? Your prayer begins in the moment that you genuinely, sincerely say, what matters now? And then just listen. Get quiet. If you're in a traffic jam of thoughts, you will not be able to hear the longing of your heart. The beauty of this listening is that in any moment that we just stop our doings and say, what matters now, and listen, gradually we will feel what's been described by some as a felt shift, where we kind of shift into a more sincere place. The word sincere really resonates for me because I find that I go through the day and it's not that I'm exactly cynical or insincere, but I've forgotten what matters. And so when I listen to my heart and connect more with what matters, there's an alignment. There's a coming together with what this heart cherishes and that's sincerity. So the first part of prayer, this breathing in, is this getting quiet and listening in a receptive way. Now it's challenging because we are very intolerant of our wants. So when we're feeling in the grip of wanting, it's not so easy to say, ah, okay, what do I really want? Because usually some part of ourselves feels ashamed or judgmental towards our wanting self. The wanting self feels small. 
the wanting self feels deficient. So it takes some training to even stop and not judge wanting. A story I shared some months ago, and I'll just say it again briefly because it was so instructive for me, at one of my first retreats, we were doing this training and paying attention to wanting and so on, and I had gone, and I I think it really was my first Buddhist retreat, I had gone to this retreat just having embarked on a new relationship, and I was completely infatuated, and through the sittings, just obsessing and obsessing, and started panicking, because I was absolutely appalled at the idea that I might go through an eight-day retreat having fantasies and not being present and sacred and honoring the moment and just off and off and off. And and it was embarrassing. I didn't want to even report in an interview that I was just absolutely out there, you know, just spinning all these fantasies. And so I just, I would name wanting, wanting and try to go back to my breath. Not a prayer, you know, not a a chance. Finally, I went and um, spoke with one of the teachers and she says, well, how are you relating to the wanting? And I stopped and I realized the enormous amount of shame and disgust I was having around the very fact of being so caught up in wanting. So she said, that's where you start. Be with that. So as I started to be with that, it dropped away and I got interested. Okay, wanting. What's wanting like? And rather than getting lost in the story, I started just plain agreeing to feel wanting, feel it in my body, in my heart, my mind. And it was amazing because the very nature of dropping fully into wanting was to connect with aliveness. It no longer had that narrow focus of, I want this person to feel this about me so we can do this and that can happen. It opened up the same energy into just this longing to be alive, to belong to be awake, very freeing. But the starting place is to recognize we judge wanting and that it takes a mindfulness of that to be able to drop into a very immediate sense of the aliveness in our bodies. So inhabiting wanting wakefully, it brings us into divine presence. It connects us with what's real. We begin with the breathing in, with connecting with what's true. And then the breathing out is the expression, the full living of our experience. Many of you have done Tonglen here. We breathe in and feel what's intense or what's difficult. We breathe out, we offer it space, we offer it care, and it's the same thing with wanting. We breathe in, we feel the intensity, and we breathe out and offer our care, our aliveness, the space of our heart-mind. Now sometimes what we find when we're in wanting mind is that there's a real grip, a real tightness. We're feeling very small. And the wanting is expressed as a reaching out. It's, help me, right? How many of you, when you're feeling really in a jam, in some way go, help me, God? How many? Can I see by hands? Whether it's God, that's a lot of people. (laughs) 
When I first um, was involved in the ashram, one of the first or second summers, I was in New Mexico, and about 30 or 40 of us went on a trip into the mountains. We rented an old, old school bus, and there was a little old woman driving this old, old school bus, and there was these hairpin turns, and we went to the top of this mountain, had a wonderful day, picnic, climbed around, and then started driving back towards our campsite. As we were driving, I noticed that we were picking up speed, going faster and faster around these hairpin turns, and I could smell the burn of brakes that probably weren't existent anymore. And so the first thing that happened, of course, was, um, you know, feeling of panic, like this is it, because it was a classic. I mean, we were, this was a very steep, very winding, and we were going very, very fast. So I started chanting. And at that time in the ashram, the chant was a chant to the uh, kind of divine energy that's protective and loving. I just started chanting. And I think I had smelled it first because I was sitting by the window, but other people started catching on quickly. So the whole busload of us were chanting from whatever within us was prayerful and asking for help. It was definitely one of those help me God kind of chants. But it was also a chant that in some way created a web of belonging. There was fear, streams of fear and panic and this and that in the midst of it. But bigger than that was the sound current of belonging. We belong together chanting. Now, the miracle is, and I don't, for whatever, the bus toppled over towards the mountain in the ditch, landed on its head. We all climbed out. Nobody was injured. One person went to a chiropractor and got a free treatment. (laughs) That's the end of the story. But it was really awesome to sense the kind of um, immediacy of reaching out and the sense of connectedness and belonging that, that came out of that reaching out. In times of sudden danger, most people call out, Oh my God, why would they keep doing this if it didn't help? Rumi writes, Only a fool keeps going back where nothing happens. The whole world lives within a safeguarding. Fish inside waves, birds held in the sky. All subsist, exist, are held in the divine. Nothing is ever alone for a single moment. All giving comes from there. No matter who you think you put your open hand out toward, it's that which gives. The notion that we reach out when we pray is sometimes viewed as being kind of immature, that it's dependent, that it's dualistic, that we're thinking of some great, strong, uh, creative force out there and we're little and victimized and reaching out for help and that it reinforces a sense of smallness. And I think if we are habitually praying in a fearful way and it's not mindful and we're feeling victimized, it certainly can. But there's also a way in which we intuit that that sea that we're swimming in and are reaching out to that which is already within us, to a sense of 
the divine, a sense of love, a sense of safety that is our nature. I know that when I do long retreats, almost inevitably at some point during the retreat, if I'm really sitting and diving in deeply, I'll touch a place of grief, a sense of of all the losses. Sometimes it seems personal, sometimes it feels very much just the griefs of the world, the suffering of the world. And I'll weep deeply and frequently because on retreats it's always so silent. I'll go find myself some distant place in the woods where I can't be heard. And I always find I gravitate to a certain tree, different trees, different times, and and hold on. And that puts me in the category of a classic tree hugger. (laughs) But it's an incredible experience because I find that there is an enormous sense of uh, tenderness and nourishment that in some way the energy of the tree, it's kind of this mother, divine, beloved energy that's holding me. But after a bit, as I let go and let go, it's just that sense of compassion that's my heart and your heart and the tree's heart and all hearts. It's not a sense of separation. Do you understand that we reach out, but it's really our own boundless heart that we end up resting in? I have a client who describes a very... Um, painful, painful childhood where her parents, her mother, when she was very young, would would shake her and she felt like she was going to die. And there was no one she could turn to except the dog and the family who became her absolute savior. And whenever she was afraid, she would hug this warm, furry being and find the sense of belonging. We need stepping stones. When we're very small and tight, we can say, okay, I belong to the universe, I'm part of the universe, and it might or might not work. But because the truth is we belong to trees and to each other and to our dogs and to this moment, we choose the forms that return us to that sense of divine embrace. It's a wise and skillful way to discover the truth of our belonging. A client um, some years ago saw a sign and on it it said, breathe in, breathe out, smile. And then under the bottom, tick not hum. You You know that mantra? Breathe in, breathe out, smile. He was new to the world of meditation, so for the next something like 12 to 18 months, he went around mentally vibrating the mantra, Tick not Han. <laughs> That's what he thought it meant. He thought that was the, those were the Asian words for breathe in, breathe out, smile. <laughs> and he did it with enormous devotion and sincerity. As he uttered those words, he felt himself connecting with the whole bliss of, of receiving life with friendliness. Tick not Han. You know. And when he found out, in contrast to the placebo effect, he was, you know, it was great, it was fine. What we get when we reach out is what we bring to the reaching out. The practice of prayer, all you have to do 
is feel sincere. Even if you don't feel prayerful, to even have the intention to pray. Much like metta, because that's a prayer. Even if you don't feel loving-kindness towards yourself, when you say, may I be filled with loving-kindness, even if you have somewhere in you the intention to care, it's like a magnet. It draws us towards that boundless heart. John O'Donohue again. Don't demean longing of our hearts by straining outside ourselves to a cold, distant, abstract God. Our prayers to the Beloved, whatever expression resonates. I love the word Beloved because it's the word that most easily allows this falling into love itself. It seems like beloved is other. Beloved naturally melts back into just being in love. We all have some form of beloved that reconnects us. You can for a moment meditate and sense in your life someone that's a beloved one, a person for now. We'll do a meditation in a moment that's a little different, but just sense for now someone that you absolutely feel is dear. A beloved. And sense them happy. And sense them close to you. Sense your mutual love. And relaxing any idea of the other, of the beloved, just feel the love. This heart of the Buddha, which is love. When we reach out to belong, we're on the path of remembering. A sutra of the Holy Buddha until you reach the path you wander in the world with the precious Buddha completely wrapped up inside as, a, as in a bundle of rags. You have this precious Buddha. Unwrap it quickly. There's no self that does the unwrapping. There's just discovering our belonging moment by moment. It's as if life keeps presenting us with the activities and the people and the places and the springtime to remind us. And our practice is to breathe in, to listen, and to breathe out, to reach out, to express our love, our longing, our appreciation. We close tonight with a very short meditation. Feeling the breath, feeling the breath at the heart. And as we began earlier, sensing what you're devoted to.
sensing your prayer. The longing that's within that devotion. The longing to connect, the longing for freedom, whatever is true for you. Listening to your heart as you breathe in, listening to this place of devotion, that place in you that knows what matters. And sensing as you breathe out its expression as a prayer, as care, as your love for life. Drawing on the power of words now to offer to your own being whatever prayer you'd like to at this moment. Sensing your vulnerability, the truth of your heart, offering yourself a prayer. Bringing someone to mind, a beloved or dear one, and offering a prayer for them. Opening the awareness to sense yourself with a number of other beings touching in a sincere way their hearts and letting your prayer include all that are here that each may connect with the truth of their being that each may love fully live fully And then extending our prayer to those that need it in this world, those at this very moment are suffering in extreme ways, those at war, May the compassion of our hearts, may our presence be of benefit, help to relieve suffering, help to bring peace and freedom to all beings. We close with the sound current of awe, the expression of the heart's longing for love, and realization of love. Please inhale deeply. Ah.
Thank you for your presence tonight. So if you will just stay for a few more moments, we only have a couple of announcements. Um, Peggy, I'd like to ask you to start in, if you will. Do you want this one? My name is Peggy. I manage the tape table. I was just going to remind you and tell those of you who don't know that we have two ways we sell tapes and books. We sell a lot of Tara's talks and some by other teachers through Dharma Seed tapes, and we have those here every week. You can also order a tape on the same night that a talk is given. You can sign up, pay for the tape, and pick it up the next week. Um, this week only, we have a special. You can order last week's tape or this week's tape. Or for those of you who um, missed Shinsen Young, you can order a tape of Shinsen Young, too. This is a one-week special. We usually just have one week available at a time. Uh, is that everything? Tapes are $9. <laughs> and the books we have, oh yeah, last thing, we, we have a lot of tapes and books on order. So for those of you who are asking about particular tapes, they're probably on the way. A couple of other announcements. If you're not on the mailing list and you've come and you're newish, um, please put your name on. We do have a very good newsletter coming out soon, so want to make sure you get it. Also to remind you that there are Donna baskets that's for donations on the piano and at the back of the room right outside the doors. And while there's no charge, um, your donations are very much appreciated. I want to follow up on Peggy's announcement a little bit. Um, if you buy tapes that are on the table, please remember to log them in the uh, book that's available. It helps with the inventory. It's it's kind of it's a, it's very it's a difficult task keeping up with those. And IMCW doesn't make any money on these tapes. Um, goes straight up to Dharma Seed, so it's a service, and you can help us out do that way. Also, quickly. The Mindfulness at Work retreat uh, sit on Wednesday mornings. The locations change for those of us who attend that. There's a new flyer over there with new directions. Any other? If anyone is interested in um, coming to the four-week introductory series that I'll be doing in May, there's still some spots open, and you can register with, with John. 
It'll be over at Unity Woods and be given on Sunday evenings, four weeks in a row. Um, Just so you know, next week's uh, Dharma talk and meditations will be a continuation of what we did tonight. So, And there'll be an opportunity for sharing. Thank you for being here. Hope to see you again next week. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.